0: wmqa hello and welcome to wmqa the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them i'm dan groat and i'm matt laswitz and this week's guest is the writer of the new image series immortal sergeant and a whole bunch of other stuff uh joe kelly welcome joe
1: thank you thanks for having me guys
0: uh so uh we'll give you the official first time guest question what are what are some of the first comics that you remember reading
1: um so I had a uh, an uncle that just sort of handed me a box of old comics and um, included in there were uh, a, a wide variety of things. Actually, there were like war books and horror books, the war books I didn't really read. But um, mm-hmm. our books, there were there was Witching Hour, House of Mystery. Um, so books that I still have mm-hmm. and a lot of Spider-Man, uh, a lot of Superman. So it was kind of a nice introduction to that whole world when I was a kid. And and I read those over and over and over that phantom stranger specter it's like stuff that comes to mind is it was tended more to be the horror stuff but i was probably like nine or ten you know sort of just perfect and then uh then the first comic i i bought for myself was uh um, new mutants uh 18 so oh, wow, uh, okay. yeah demon bear so it was literally like i was sick i was uh home from the, the you know the, went to a doctor's appointment and my mom took me to the store and i just saw that cover you know like that's a mm-hmm. Kevich, Danny moon star cover and i was like what is this it doesn't look like any of the comics i have you know <laughs> and uh and then bought it and that was it i was hooked um kind of from that point on then it i started buying my own books and mostly was a marvel zombie for a really long time i was just x-men spidey that mm-hmm. was my universe um then in college i think well just b- prior to college the the dark knight came out um and so that was a big gateway then into, oh, there's this other adult side of comics I know nothing about. Mm. Um, and then I had a buddy in uh, in school that just had a ton of DC stuff. So I was constantly borrowing his stuff. So that was uh that's that's pretty much my my intro early days comics primer.
0: That's that's good stuff. Got you know, God knows all that Spidey and Superman would pay off later. And uh, <laughs> you, you you got to work with Sienkiewicz later on, uh, right?
1: only only once um he he inked the uh green lantern graphic novel uh that i did so um and i, I mean he's you know on my like bucket list of people to work with uh but he you know so to get to do that was incredible but uh, i would love to get you know full interiors by him too is a a dreamy <laughs> a dreamy proposition
0: <laughs> wouldn't uh, we all every, every time i'm at a convention and i see his like gallery set up on the floor you know it's 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 one of those like if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Things. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, I can only uh, imagine if you're coming back from a doctor's appointment. I hope you weren't like feverish, because you've got to imagine reading Sinkevich while you've got a fever for the first time.
1: It might have worked for me. It might have helped the whole thing congeal. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it 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 is like a, I mean those books that that run specifically like it's got such fevery imagery uh, imagery in it. know and i I just remember this there's a panel that i i forget which issue it's in i'm not good at issue numbers and stuff like that but um it's one where like magic is kind of she's kind of like seeing off whether it's into the future or just whatever and her whole like eye is just a giant spiral that just goes off the page and it's fantastic like it's burned into my memory you know um because that that sort of more expressionistic style uh really it really spoke to me although Ironically, my favorite artists at the time it was uh, it was Sinkevich and Art Adams. So, like, mm. I would you know the literal opposite ends of the spectrum, and uh, but the, I would pick up anything they they did. Oh, yeah. so.
0: both beautiful in their own way, own way. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, you are here to promote *Immortal Sergeant*, which is a new image series with your old partner on *I Kill Giants*, Ken Nomura. Uh Matt, you want to go ahead and read the pitch for the listeners? Absolutely. On the eve of his unwelcome retirement, Jim Sargent,
2: a.k.a. Sarge, a grizzled old-school detective, catches a break on a murder case that's haunted him for decades. Unfortunately, Sarge must drag his anxiety-riddled adult son, Michael, along for the ride, or risk losing the lead forever. Can this dysfunctional duo overcome their hang-ups, blind spots, and secrets
0: to catch a killer?
1: Sounds so good when you
0: read it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. I say, he gets it at least once a week. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for my first question out of the gate uh, is this series eight or nine issues? Because I've seen both, and Diamond's got to be wrong about one of them.
1: Got it. It's nine.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Nine uh, issues. And,
1: and uh, it was originally, uh, as often as the case, same with Eichel Giants, actually, um, it was intended as a graphic novel. But then when we, you know, the the economics of the business and all that good stuff, doing the monthly really helps. So um, so hence it is now nine chapters.
0: There we go. Okay. So uh what is the origin of this project? I, I think I read somewhere it has its roots in like a short story in a in a literary journal from like 2014. Is that correct?
1: So yeah, that's part of it. Um uh, the literary journal is called The Rattling Wall. And um a friend of mine, uh offered me an opportunity to, to write a story for it, which was great. It was the first prose thing I had ever done. Oh, and wow. the Sarge um, story had been in my head for a very, very long time. Um, and I had uh, told her about it and she thought it would be cool for me to write about that. But the the roots of the story kind of they, they they're they very personal. Like it actually goes back to my my life. My my dad was a cop. He was a retired cop.
0: Oh. And
1: um and I grew up. <laughs> hearing uh crime stories like a dinner you know even though he had been retired he'd been out of it for a long time uh it was very common for us to be sitting there eating and literally i, I would warn people that came over but like my dad might be like hey pass the cranberry sauce and then you do and then he's like did i ever tell you about that guy we found who did himself in the basement you know like he'll, he would do that and my dad was also incredibly funny so the sort of death's head humor that would come out of this stuff was uh, very formative, uh, both positively and negatively for me, probably in the long run. Um, Yeah. I had a therapist at one point was like, does that sound normal to you? Like being nine or 10 years old and hearing about murder. And I was like, it was funny. Um, So that, that kind of summed it all up. So, so a lot of this stuff just from a, a, you know, where did the story come from is, is kind of a, a dramatization of a lot of things that have sort of brewed between me and my dad. What does it mean to be like the, child of a cop. Um, what did it mean to be a cop, you know, for my dad and living with the sort of stuff that he lived with? He he didn't see like, you know, big action. He was, you know, not a city cop. He's out here in Nassau County, uh, you know, but he saw plenty. And, um, you know, you're held to a very high standard, but you're also dealing with the worst humanity has to offer in a lot of times. So it's complicated. And um, and I wanted to tell a story for a really, really long time. My, my dad passed away in 14 years ago uh, almost 15 actually and um and it just took me forever to really finally sit down and write it so uh and then when i did you know ken was ken was clearly the guy um because he's just so masterful at the acting and you know his style has it can have grit to it but it can also be you know it also can lighten the mood uh which is amazing so you know after working together on on giants and a bunch of things subsequent to that we always wanted to do more more work together, and I, I'm I'm the slow one in every relationship I have with every artist. Um, and and finally, this thing was done, and uh, and happily, he signed on to uh, to draw it.
0: You know, uh, so my my dad was also or is also a uh, retired uh, police detective, and uh, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this because the scene the the book opens with Sarge on a golf course, uh, you know, complaining about golf and also. You know, uh, shooting the the gold watch he had just received, and you know, my dad uh, is the opposite of that in that he <laughs> will be out on that course every every uh, well now I guess three days a, three days a week uh, mm-hmm. at this point, except for the brief period when he messed up his back. But uh, yeah, he, uh, he he never he never talked a lot about his job. I remember he would come home from work, and I, I I'd be like, "Yeah, did you catch any bad guys today?" And and he would just. I, the thing he'd always say is he arrested a guy named Ralph Cramden, you know from the Honeymooners, right? And uh, that was it. I know I never got any of the uh, the war stories out of him at uh, six or seven years old, or or however old I was at the time.
1: But, I, I think that's good. I think that's good. And <laughs> and when my when my dad retired, you know, he um, I was very young uh, when he retired, so I don't really remember that that period. But based on what he had told me and what my mom, you know, had told me uh it was reluctant he didn't he really didn't want to retire he didn't have somebody sort of looking out for him in the force, so he kind of got railroaded into a, a job he didn't really care for he had become a sergeant mm-hmm. um but he became sergeant in the motor pool and so i was like he literally was saying like yeah i spent days you know welding chains onto you know the undercarriages of of cars so the transmission wouldn't you know fall out he's like and that's not what i Wanted to do so, and depending on who you asked, that was that was uh, an earned position based on his ability to mouth off to people and, and uh, you know and not play ball and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, See, that's so he, where
0: my dad comes in. <laughs> oh, <okay. Sorry. laughs> Matt, Matt, your dad was a uh, a loose cannon who played by his own rules. You
2: you grew up with me. You know how many jobs my dad went through. <laughs> Why do you think you kept going through new jobs? Cause my dad knew better than everybody still yeah. does to this
1: day. There you go. There you go. Well, that, uh, that, that apparently is, is part, part of what got him, uh, where it got him in the end, but, and you know, and he did, he did do work after that, but I think he always missed it. You know, he, um, he had always told me that he became, he became a policeman because he couldn't get into the military, um, why he couldn't get in i mean he always blamed it on like bad knees and buck teeth or something ridiculous i don't fully understand it but he he had wanted to go to world war II and couldn't and um so he the next best thing was to become a a cop for him he, it was like an adventure that he wanted to have um so he i know he really did love it he was a motorcycle cop you know uh, for part of his career and um you know had a couple of you know interesting that non non gruesome things like you know road to kennedy motorcade at one point and
0: stuff like that oh, wow.
1: Yeah. So some pretty cool stuff. So, um, yeah, he loved it. And I I think if he if he could have stayed in it um, happily, I think he would have, you know, for a long time. But it also it also caused him a lot of misery, you know, and and he drank plenty. Um, You know, we used to talk about that. He didn't drink when I was uh, sort of growing up at all. I actually never saw him. I saw him drink once literally in my life. But he, uh, you know, he said, you know, we didn't do therapy. You know, it's like we're all tough guys. We're all John Wayne. So you know, we got together and drank, and that was that. So um, and you know, there are stories there too about leaving the squad car on the neighbor's lawn, and you know, what are they going to do? Call the cops? <laughs> like, you know, like that was that was the scenario. So um, it was it, it was a very storied life. I, I think that even if you have a sort of boring career as a as a police officer, it's a storied life. So I, I've always been kind of fascinated. I always felt a little too close to it to really write about it. But then eventually, you know, the circumstances that that the story is based on, though very far abstracted, I don't want to insinuate this is like a memoir or anything like that, but taking taking things from, from my life and, and it, you know, being able to inject that in a story, something I wanted to do for, for a very long time. And um, and I'm glad it's finally out, out, <laughs> out <laughs> of me. It's very, you know, uh, cathartic in its own way.
0: Yes, it uh will have been out by Wednesday uh as yes. we're recording. Uh it's always fun to explain time to people. But uh <laughs> you know, the the other important relationship here is the relationship between as between you and Ken as collaborators. Mm-hmm. Uh what do you what do you like about working with Ken? That's that's kind of brought you back to him uh a few times now. You know, how does it differ working with him from working with other artists?
1: Ken is um Gosh, there are so many things I admire about him. Um, you know, he's just literally one of the sweetest people. Um, such a nice guy. And he's always been a go-getter. He's a really diligent worker. I mean, the, the way we first met up was that we were at a comic convention together in in Spain. And, you know, in, in the European conventions, it's it's very chill. Like nobody, it. I'm sure, you know, they'll have like guests of honor and that sort of stuff. But you're very likely to just be sat at a table with somebody who's brand new, or you go to lunch with fans, like, you know, you're just out. It's very, they're, they're art festivals, you know, it's very <laughs> cool. So him and I, we were seated at a table together and he was, uh, showing off a book of short stories that he had done. And I was looking for somebody to draw, I kill giants and he could draw, like he had so many different styles in this book. It was remarkable. And, um, I asked him if he'd be interested in working together and, and he's just plays it so cool. Like it turned out he was a huge fan of steampunk, and um and he didn't want to let me know and he was still in art <laughs> school which he really didn't want to let me know and so he he said yes and uh and then we got to work together but he designed like he's a he's a really great designer and he does a lot of research you know so he he really goes in he wants to know what a house looks like before he starts drawing it he wants to figure out all the characters um so i love that attention to detail and i really love how his his line work looks really effortless and i think to sort of the untrained eye, it almost looks so loose. Like he's not, he's not putting in any kind of, uh, God, what's, what's the right word? Like he, it's not that it doesn't look like he's not trying cause everything is so skilled, but it looks so relaxed. But, mm-hmm. but I know having watched him work that it's actually meticulous. Like it's taken him years to develop a style that can look that loose. And I, so I really respond to that. Um, and he's a really good storyteller. You know, he's a he's a writer in his own right. So there are many scenes, you know, he he was probably the first editor of both Giants and, you know, Sarge, because, you know, he'd read through a scene and, and he'd be like, hey, I, you know, I tweak this a little. What do you think? Or something drags. He, he'll literally, and this is another thing he'll do that's amazing. He'll draw stuff and then just throw it out. You'll have a complete, like, spread couple of pages. It's like, I don't, I don't know if this works. I could do this in three panels like okay <laughs> you know, fine <laughs> you're the one who just spent like a day and a half doing it but he um he's very fast he's really diligent and and above all he cares about the story which you know most uh most of the artists i worked with do um but he he i think he just takes it to the next level um and he just bleeds for all this stuff he's so he's just so diligent and um he's just wonderful and he's and he's just a i was just saying he's a great travel partner we've traveled around before together He's just so chill. He speaks like
0: five languages. He's, he's a super genius. He's just one of those guys. Polymath. Love it. We love it. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you find that you have to be, I not have to be, but you get to be looser in scripting with Ken than you would another artist.
1: It's, it's funny. I, I probably could, but I I don't. Um, cause I, I it sort of started early on for me. I, I always feel guilty if I give something that's too loose. Um, a very long time ago somebody who was a, an old timer i worked with had actually wondered if i could just call him up and like tell him the story on the phone <laughs> instead of sending him a script and i was like yeah i don't i don't think that's what they're paying me for i think I actually like to write the script but um i even in the beginning when i was sort of working in in what's technically marvel style right the plot style i still put in dialogue i still kind of was breaking out panels you know it just uh, never felt right i i was trained as a screenwriter so that's sort of my, uh, my foundational understanding of writing. Um, so I tend to be a little, you know, plenty meticulous, whether I'm working with somebody who who needs it or doesn't. And, but I think with Ken, the caveat is that he can, he can chuck whatever he wants. You know, that's the beauty of it. It's like some people you're giving them the roadmap and you're like, please follow step-by-step step these directions. And other people, you can give it to them go, so here, here's how it is in my head. You know, what's important. Have fun, you know, and, and Ken is certainly
0: So, uh, we did get one Twitter question, uh, friend of the show Asimov fangirl wanted to know about, uh, the decision to go black and white with this book. If that was, you know, just how Ken preferred to work was, you know, a mutual decision. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I love his, his black and white work. Um, when we did it on I kill giants in part, it was because, you know, he basically was trying to figure out a way to work as quickly as possible. And also, you know, for free, basically, um, and, you know, he, he's co-owned the book, but he had to do it, you know, as while well. he was still going to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the beauty, you know, creator-owned books is a lot of times there's no money in, unless there's money, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had, he had asked to do it in black and white. And then because we just now are used to that, I think that was just sort of the automatic default mode. Um, he absolutely can do color, you know, and I, I've i seen his color work. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it. I don't know if color would have actually served this story in uh, particularly well. Um we did talk about like spot color at one point um maybe for because Sarge te- he does tell stories, you know, and mm-hmm. and that's part of the um part of the tapestry of the, of the whole no- uh, graphic novel, but so it might have been cool to do some some color treatments on some of the stories or something along those lines, but he was able to convey stuff without it um and you'll see as the you know as things start to evolve and we get to know more about what's going on and and mysteries and things like that. He pulls off some stuff in black and white that um, it, it was shocking to me. That he was able to do it like overlapping images and things that like, no way, this is going to look like mud in black and white. And it's clear as day. It's so good. So um, yeah, I just, uh, I just love it. I love what he does. And um, yeah, you know, maybe someday we'll do a book in color. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs>
2: How far along were you in the process when you went from graphic novel to miniseries?
1: Oh, it, we were done. Yeah, we were completely done. So the it's with both, both giants and with Sarge, you know, we, like I said, we shifted to to chapters, but they were, they were for different reasons and, and done in different ways. So with, uh, with giants, because we were trying something, you know, completely untested and, uh, image at the time it's hard to imagine a time where image was like oh they're the little risky upstart but every <laughs> once in a while you know they would fall into that category and that was the case with this so eric uh, stevenson had the the bright idea of um when we printed the individual issues we were going to overprint them leave all the guts of the book in storage so that when we printed the actual trade paperback the guts already exist because when you you know when you print turning on the printing press costs money, but then however long you let it run, that's like pennies on a dollar. Right? So you basically, in what we did was we basically did double the print run left half of it around so that when we did the first printing of, um, the trades, it's whatever 5,000 copies or something that we just had sitting in a warehouse. So it just kept the cost down significantly, which is, uh, it was just smart business. Um, and and anybody who has one of those first <laughs> trades, that's the paper is a little wonky as a result because that's sort of how it went in, and you would print differently, and you know whatever. So, but it was good. That's why we did it. So every chapter had to be perfect bound, twenty four pages. So then we had to go in and redo some chapters and move some stuff around, with the exception of the final issue, which is a little bigger. This one we just decided um, we're just going to keep breaking it up. You know, we're going to find the natural chapter breaks. And just throw it in whatever page signature works, um, because we we did a lot of editing on this book. It was uh, it's pretty long, you know, as it is. It's it's over three hundred pages, and Ken and I did a pass, and we were, worked with Joe Illich and uh, Joe did multiple passes with us. So when it came time to do more chapter breakdowns, I was like, I can't edit this book again. Like I, I we finished <laughs> this book four times. I can't, you know. So um so it's a little looser uh, in that regard
0: the uh credits at the back of issue one li- list six uh people as assistants uh what, what what was I was curious what their role was in the book
1: that's yeah that's all uh Ken so you know Ken lives in in Japan he lives in mm-hmm. Tokyo and he's very much enmeshed in the whole uh, sort of manga scene out there So part of doing the book you know where Giants had a, a little bit more of a fantastic element to it. We really wanted this book to be as grounded as possible. And even though Ken would, uh, he would say, oh, he's not really a guy who can draw cars and he's not really a guy who can draw, he of course can draw all that stuff and he can draw it very well. But he liked the idea of having assistants to help him with the backgrounds in the way you would do, you know, it, like many manga are drawn. So those are the assistants that help with inking, lettering, you know, getting stuff set up for him so he could really focus on on storytelling.
0: So uh, what is what's something that you got to do in this story, uh, non-spoilery, uh, that you haven't gotten to do in other work?
1: Yeah, this I mean, well, really digging in like as overtly as possible, um, coming close to elements of my own life. You know, I've I've written there are characters that are based on amalgams of people all the time, you know, uh, Blind Al, uh m- maybe was a terrible cook because at the time I was newly married and my wife made cheeseburger helper and burned it or something like, maybe that happened (laughs) in real life. Um, you know, uh, I used to get asked in the Superman office, you know, how things are going at home because Lois and Clark were fighting and it might be things that were directly said in my, in my relationship. So, you know, I've done, I've done all those things and just, you know, abstracted them and, and my, my parents and my friends have found ways into books before. But this was um, an opportunity to really take, I mean, some of the stories, like the stuff that Sarge uh, tells, some of the stories are literally stories I heard a million times growing up. So they're almost verbatim, uh, or at least to m- the best of my memory, how my dad would tell those stories. Um, the character of Sarge says things that that directly came out of my dad's mouth that I heard multiple times. So it really, it really was... Um, more, I, I try to infuse myself and the things that I'm thinking about and and issues in my life into anything I'm doing. Because I, though I've certainly done it, you know, the the straight up roller coaster ride eventually gets boring for me. Like it's um it's fun, it's great to do a big bombastic action thing, but if there's no like deeper themes or or meat, you know, emotional meat, um, I I find I lose interest. So I can only do that for a little bit of time. So this was like a lot of that, right? It's all this emotional baggage. Um, and and because it was cribbed directly from life, you know, it just sort of made it that much more kind of emotional uh, for me to, you know, to sit down and do it. So I, I hadn't really ever done that before. Um, I also feel like I'd never, you know, Giants, Giants is close, but this is a not as straight a drama, you know, as as probably I would get. Yeah. Um, You know, I Kill Giants has the, do you want to believe it's fantasy? Do you want to believe it's in her mind? Element, which is really important to me, the whole magical realism aspect of it. Sarge's, um, it's very. I think it's very funny. It's meant to be this kind of like dark comedy at different points. You know, it's it's got elements of a of a buddy story. You know, like a buddy cop story, turned on its side a little bit. It's um, you know, a road story because they're. They wind up going from New York to to Georgia during the course of this whole uh, this whole sort of manhunt and investigation, but um, you know, at, but at its heart, it is a crime story, you know, and a father son story. Like those are the two competing elements. So, to to really look at drama in that way and and to sort of build a a crime story, that was completely new for me, and um, and really a lot of fun. And the the short story. The prose story uh, that you'd mentioned um, in Rattling Wall—it uh, was called SOS—and it was, it's a scene that's in, I think, issue four. It's, uh, I think, um, was this particular scene that I had thought of a, a very long time ago, um, all played out in the road trip. You know, so uh, I was uh, again, my my friend that asked me to contribute to the magazine, I was very, you know, appreciative that she let me just sort of do this like. You know it'd be like chapter whatever of a novel like here it is a slice in the middle with a little bit of understanding kind of in the beginning of, of why you're there um so again you know and just trying to keep it real you know and and trying to feel um you know uh, like i said keep everything grounded keep everything relatable so that yeah you're on a a wild ride but you would believe what what's happening with all you know there's no superpowers there's no nothing there's nothing to to fall back on um so it, it's it's and other than Ken's art which luckily i can always hide behind
0: <laughs> just a cop with nothing to lose in one week till retirement right. <laughs> uh you in the, in that theme you know what are what are your uh cop shows police dramas procedurals of choice uh
1: it's funny i'm not i'm probably really gonna date myself by answering this question um i'm trying to think of the cop stuff that i like you know i mean the things that i i like tend to be really dark um Mm -hmm. you know i mean i'm hannibal you know i think was a especially the first season of hannibal was like Mm -hmm. peak television i love that show um what else are my procedurals um you know, well, you know, and then I'll take a Brooklyn Nine Nine for sure. Like, I also need the comedy part of it. Yeah, the part I was going to say is dating myself. My, you know, when I used to ask my dad, like, what were the good cop shows? Um, he he really liked Car Fifty Four, which I I thought was interesting. But okay. but the one that he said was the most like real life, which so it has a, a fondness and uh, spot in my heart was Barney Miller, which you know you guys might be too young to remember, but it was a you know it was a sitcom basically but it took place in the in the in the precinct Mm -hmm. and just all the ball busting and all the like shit the cops do to each other like that was felt very real to him um so i have a a special place in my heart for that but um yeah otherwise it's probably movies like it's probably less tv so you know like seven obviously is you know top of the pile i mean you can't (laughs) you can't beat that movie um And uh, L.A. Confidential is a great detective movie. Um, I love Sicario. You know, so I I do like the grittier, uh, the first season of True Detective uh, and the second season. Actually, I really enjoyed both of those. Um, So, yeah, I guess I do actually like more more cop shows than I tend to admit. Um, The Night Of was incredible. I actually saw that on HBO. Oh, that was that was stellar. It's got one of the best John Turturro's uh acting bits uh, but it was yeah really really great series um and then um but you know crime books i don't really tend to read a lot of crime books um i was on the on you know certainly after discovering him on the brian bendis kick of like going back and reading his crime stuff uh which was super cool and um i've read a little bit of the you know ed's uh, brubaker's crime stuff you know so. But I, I don't know that I, I tend to pursue it in comics. Um, maybe one exception in in manga is uh, Monster. Um, yeah, I mean that. You know, <laughs> the viewers at home can't see us all nodding, but Monster <laughs> is a amazing, amazing story. And I don't know if it's technically, you know, crime in the traditional sense, but it's a it's more psychological thriller. So uh, that's probably where I wind up on the spectrum. You know, I, I like the psychological thriller stuff um so if that happens to have cops doing investigations then i'm I'm all
0: in i was i i was never a big fan of the cop show but i was obsessed with the shield uh 20 years ago if i may date myself
1: (laughs) (laughs) no that's shield and uh i have not uh dived into the wire but i know everyone's like you gotta see the wire like it still stands like said 20 something years later Mm -hmm. as some of people's favorite show like I, i'm shocked um but it apparently still holds up and you get to see badass young idris elba so that's, that's and it, it, once you've got through the shield you need
2: to check luther
1: his mm-hmm. show on
2: the bbc which is
1: tremendous yeah yeah and that that's the sort of stuff i would like i mean i definitely i really do enjoy that you know broken borderline psychotic <laughs> oh, god uh Luther's um, right up your
0: alley. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh I found this description of the uh in the book of the 1972 Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Or actually, excuse me. Uh I found this description of the 1972 Cadillac Coupe de Ville online uh on a website. Uh, which is, and I'm saying this uh, for the listeners because that's the car that Sarge drives in the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, The 72 Caddy was the quintessential land barge. It floated along serenely and optimistically uh, across America on the fresh and uncrowded interstate system. It's 7.7 liter V8 slurping a gallon of 39-cent gas every 12 blissfully isolated miles. (laughs) They're Monty and ass pros. I recite that to ask this. What is your your 1972 Cadillac Coupe DeVille you know what car would you defend in a badass sounding speech to unappreciative youths <laughs>
1: um that's a that's a great question i'm not really a big car guy uh which is which is funny i had to sort of dig to try to figure out the sarge's car my dad liked cars um but the it's going to it's so not badass the car i love but it's a Volkswagen vanagon <laughs> Because the Vanagon, I, le- I learned to drive on a Vanagon on a stick shift. And um, I, so I just loved that car. And my, da- my dad had a friend, uh, he would trade motorcycles. And, you know, one one day he'd show up with like a male Jeep and we we'd just drive that for a while. And then another week he'd show up with Volkswagen Beetle or Super Beetle with like a hole rotted out in the in the floorboard so you couldn't put your feet down you know like that sort of thing um,
0: or you could and for you could
1: down- <laughs> and if you drove over a puddle you would splash the the person in the, the passenger seat but uh but the vanagon just became like my high school car and um i taught i forced myself to learn to drive stick on it so i uh, almost killing it and then i did actually kill that car i drove it um that thing you know you talk about the Deville <laughs> guzzling gas this this vanagon we had drank oil and and just peed it all over the driveway. So uh, you know, of course, the old man would be like, If you ever see that oil light come on, you got to pull over immediately. And I literally drove a block away from my house, the light came on, I turned around to go back to the garage, and then it died. I seized the engine block. So so that car has a special place in my heart. I don't I don't know, it's not badass. Um, but it's a it's a beautiful example of uh of a slice of time and adventure and uh you know we did not have the camper with the pop-up top but if you do that's that's even more glorious um and sarge's sarge's car i did i did go out with somebody once uh her dad had a uh monte carlo ss with a nitrous button in it oh, and that wow. was that was pretty solid yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was like Are we ever going to open that up and try but we never did um but it, it did have the nitrous button and that was it was fun to drive like a muscle car, you know. Th- that was fun. Um, but for Sarge, it was just trying to come up with you know this this vehicle that I think my dad would have appreciated um for its preposterous size, you know, like that it 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 is so like quintessentially American and of that time, um that you would just have this this rolling tank, uh and it and it just represents so much about. The character and and what he's like so it becomes a you know sort of an external marker for him and and on this journey um and and the car's got a couple of special features <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of it all of which i heard about in real life um one, one that was cut from the book just because it was it was just a superfluous scene but i there was a story about a guy who he was tired of getting um people getting him with their high beams uh when they would drive up behind him at night. So he installed a spotlight in his rear view in his back window. So if you came up to him with high beams, he would just blind any, I I don't know if he killed somebody, but he definitely drove somebody off the road. And I was like, Oh yeah, Sarge would have that in his car. So we have the whole scene of that of him blinding somebody and driving them off the road. And then uh, it didn't really get us anything. So we cut it, but that's the sort of stuff Sarge would do to his own car. So uh, hopefully the beast will, will get
0: it. You know, some love. I like that. It's like a vindictive inspector gadget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, my, my my answer to the same question is, is also not badass. Uh, I, I put the 1985 Chevrolet Caprice, which is the station wagon with the wood paneling mm-hmm. on the side. Uh, that was teen, the teenage me's idea of a dream car, which probably says a lot. But uh, <laughs> I, I like the name Vanagon because mm-hmm. it sounds like the van as its own distinct shape, <laughs> and it also sounds like a third breed of of less cool but still awesome in their own ways Transformers.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> True.
0: My wife's aunt
2: was driving a Vanagon up until five years ago, ish. Nice. Nice. she she. Grew, I think she wound up giving it to uh, my brother-in-law when she got a better van for camping, but right. but that they someone in that family rode that vanagon to the ground. Right, I so, love yeah. it. And I'm pretty sure the oil thing was not just yours. <laughs> it was something that that car leaked.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just love one of the things. I'm not. I, I'm not a very technically savvy guy, especially when it comes to to car stuff. But I like that I could open a Volkswagen engine at that time and know what I was looking at. Like it, it made me feel a little bit, um, a little bit more in charge of my own destiny. <laughs> I could at least, I could at least hit the right parts with the tools. Uh, you know, if I had to work on a car. But ah, oh, the Vanagon. It's a beautiful thing. There's one actually a few blocks from my house, and I'm always tempted to just go knock on a door and be like you want to get rid of that thing um, <laughs> one of the holy grails was a thing called the volkswagen thing you know do you know that car yeah it's a it was a kind of a jeep essentially but you could take everything off and like lit really pull off so you could take off the roof and you could take off the doors and all sorts of stuff it's sort of a it's kind of ugly it's so beautiful because it's so ugly uh it looks like a kid's idea of what a car is uh but like a five-year-old draw- drawing a car <laughs> Yeah, it's ridiculous. So that was another Holy Grail car. So again, not not really particularly uh, badass, but I like the weird cars. I I always said that if I had a like a preposterous amount of money, I I and a and a garage where I could actually do it, I wanted to cut a Volkswagen Beetle in half and stretch it out and make it into the uh, the Tim Burton Batmobile, like because it has the body. You can just picture it if you cut the front off and extended mm-hmm. it and gave it the beetle and then you put the big wings on the fenders, it would yeah. look like a badass mini Batmobile. So that's kind of where I live as far as my
0: car. Now. Listen, they, they, they can't all be, and they should not all be cherry red convertibles. Uh, what I'm hearing is that we are men of vision. That's
1: exactly correct. <laughs> exactly. I like the way you see the world.
0: <laughs> For me, the, the,
2: the beetle has, a, that was the, the car that my family had, the first car that i remember them having so i remember that but you know if there was a car i could defend because i'm not a car guy after watching 15 seasons of supernatural the 67 impala that they drove mm-hmm. for 15 seasons i could probably wax re- wax rhapsodic about that because uh so dean winchester did that at least two or three times a season so i, <laughs> I could probably quote some of that <laughs>
0: Now uh we still have to meet Michael the uh the son uh at the, at this point he's <laughs> sort of the other half of the equation right
1: mhm yeah so michael uh michael uh who's named after my older brother actually um uh just cuz i i'm lazy and i could not come up with another <laughs> name and i i was like i can't name him joe it's already a, embarrassing enough that I'm so, so much of my own life is in this but um but michael is um He's a video game designer who who doesn't hasn't really cracked making money yet. Um, His wife is a lawyer, and so she's sort of floating him along. They have three kids. And um, but, you know, he's he's passionate about about what he does. And he basically lives in a world that Sarge does not understand. You know, he is he's the opposite polar opposite of whatever Sarge would have anticipated like a son would be and uh and so that's created a lot of friction throughout both of their lives together and um (laughs) and michael is in in many ways also the the weird amalgam um you know dragon ball morph of me and ken you know he sort of looks like ken um definitely does not look like me because he has hair but he uh uh, and i'm glad glad we all have the memo we all shaved appropriately for the (laughs) for the podcast um (laughs) But uh, (laughs) so yeah, Mike, and I, I, I love Michael as a character. I mean, he, he is, he is pretty neurotic. He, you know, he grew up, he grew up in the house that I'm describing, you know, like, and Sarge, Sarge is, is much more overbearing than my, my dad was. My dad, my dad actually mellowed quite a bit. Um, Part of the reason that he's named Michael, like I said, I have this older brother, but my older brother's uh, 15 years older than me from my dad's previous marriage. Mm -hmm. And, Many many times over the years, when we were talking about it, he he would say, you know, we had different fathers essentially, because he had him when he was still on the force, when he was still out there drinking, like and married to his mother, who who was a character in her own right. Um, so they had they had a different, he had a very different upbringing than I did. So I got the mellow version of my dad, which every time he would say that to me, I was I was horrified for him because I can't imagine what it was like so the, so sarge is is sort of a, imagining what that would be like um so yeah so michael's been affected by a lot of stuff he's very nervous he really wants to impress sarge all the time um and doesn't really know how you know he doesn't really have the tools um and sarge doesn't entirely have the tools to sort of see michael for who he is um even though he's you know a proper adult you know uh, both of them are, are, are proper adults um And, and, you know, just, uh, I don't, I want to totally talk about my dad the entire time, but because it's sort of critical to the story, you know, my dad was, he was very supportive of, uh, of me, especially once he realized I was able to make a living at it. But prior to that, he was still, uh, mostly supportive. My, my mom was a little bit more encouraging about creativity. My dad, uh, wanted me to be a plumber, um, mostly because he said, everybody has to take a shit. So that was that was his reasoning: was that you will never go out of business. Everyone has to take a shit. Um, that was a sort of sage wisdom my dad would, would pass along. Um, so true, you know, certainly true. Um, uh, but I was not, I was not cut out for that stuff. So, um, so that relationship, you know, once my once I bought my first house, um, and and my wife, uh, my wife's a guidance counselor. So Miss Malay from uh, I Kill Giants is, is based on my wife. And she's always had benefits, of course. So, you know, that's probably the greatest thing that any creative person could <laughs> marry into. Somebody who's supportive and has benefits. Um, so, you know, when we were able to buy our first house, that's where my dad was like, oh, you actually make money doing this comic book stuff. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of been paying the bills. Um, so that's, you know, again, the foundation of, of the relationship in the book. But my dad was much more understanding and, and supportive. And, very proud uh you know he would he would tell anybody who would listen and and also people who wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> he was, proud of
2: him. was it a conscious choice to hold the introduction of michael back for the second chapter or is that just sort of how the story built out
1: yeah he was certainly not going to be i mean so if you picture the whole thing as a graphic novel he he shows up in chapter 2 um and so it just paced out this way you know once we chopped it up into chapters uh it, it was the natural break but um yeah we really needed to get grounded on who sarge was first you know he's he's so larger than life and you have to sort of inhabit his orbit for a little while before we bring in you know this this very highly affected yeah <laughs> um and and i think also it just sets you up too because i think you know i i hope people find sarge uh at the same time sort of funny charming but also a little uh you know discomforting like he's he's very abrasive and he you know says it like he sees it whether or not that's good bad or indifferent um so if he makes readers a little uncomfortable the second you see michael you have an ally you know and so so you needed to have sarge for a little while because michael is like oh yeah i get it and and michael's wife uh val she really gets it and she doesn't tolerate sarge's bullshit so you know, so he's Michael's always kind of caught in the middle of you know this guy he loves and admires, but also fears and hates, and is defending him from you know other people who you know would happily stab him in the heart because he's a pain in the ass. Um, you know, as much as it's a, a father-son story, the the women in in their lives are are really critical. Um, so. Michael's wife, Val, and Rhoda, his, his mother, and Sarge's ex, um, they're, they're really pivotal to sort of understanding, I think, how these guys cope with life, how they cope with one another. Um, I've always just found, I, I find relationships, of course, interesting. I mean, it's just, you know, the root of everything that, you know, that we do uh, as writers, but, you know, familial relationships, obviously, is always good drama to mine but it it did it would feel weird to me to do the father son story without acknowledging like yeah there's a lot of other people in this equation um and i think you know uh, i'm like i said i'm i'm glad that, that your dad didn't didn't terrorize your family with stories and stuff you know our our house definitely was i think it was different because of the who my dad was and who my mom was you know for sure and she had a way of Kind of dismissing him and um and yet being cowed by his sort of personality too you know it was, it was a strange thing and like i said my wife she tolerates a lot of nonsense for me and uh, has done a very good job of putting up with my crap for a long time so um she may also be the inspiration of this particular character <laughs> uh just another another facet so uh, that's that's most of the cast
0: So uh, you're, you're a writer known for humor, not that you've limited yourself to that by any means, but do you feel like your, your own views on what's funny have changed since you started writing?
1: Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, For a number of reasons. I mean, it's, um, certain things will always be funny. Uh, I will, I will always laugh when I see a, uh, this will be a perfect example of what I think is funny. Um, Videos of kids being uh toppled over by cats. I'm talking like toddlers <laughs> where they leap out of the bushes and knock over <laughs> like a two-year-old. I will laugh at that for my entire life and I maybe I'm going to hell for that. I don't know. But um, you know, that's like low-hanging fruit stuff. And I and I'll always, you know, that stuff is perpetually funny to me. But um yeah, I uh it's it's been very interesting to have a have a career in this particular medium because you know, comics obviously it's it's a week, it's a monthly thing. Sometimes you're doing weekly, depending on, you know, what franchise you're in. You're working on franchise characters. And, and if you've been around long enough, you know, 25 years, which I'm, I'm thrilled and proud of, um, you know, you're a different person. You know, I, I was in my mid to late twenties when I first started in this industry. So the things that, you know, when they, every time they collect like Deadpool, there's a disclaimer, you know, and now and it's like the official Disney disclaimer that you'll see, like on Disney Plus shows about like this was written in a different time. And, you know, <laughs> there's certain things are bad and will always be bad, but we didn't want to change it. And and I've written stuff about my old writing, you know, because um, there is stuff that I was not particularly sensitive about or, you know, had that, um, you know, that position of of entitlement and and not. Not paying attention and not worrying, right? It's like, oh, it's funny, it's okay. And while I, I, I think it's really important to not run around self censoring all the time. um, If, if everybody agrees, you're on the same page. If contextually, we're all like, we're all here to put on a show. We're here to laugh, and we're here to whatever. And you have to believe uh, that it's a, it's a good faith argument, right, on both, both sides, uh, both the audience and the creator. Then I think you know you should take the gloves off and just have fun and do everything you can to make somebody laugh or to rip out their heart or whatever it is you need to do. But then you have to acknowledge that we live in a time where it's not always a good faith argument. It's not always a good faith conversation between people, and stuff can be taken out of context and and etc. So to that degree, I think I I pay a little bit more attention and I'm a little bit more thoughtful about the stuff that I that I write and Sarge is especially like that because you know he is uh he's an older fella and he is very much set in his ways and there's a lot about the world that he he chooses not to understand and and um doesn't understand you know um most of which uh i think i'm sort of positive within the story is is being on the job you know like when most of what you're confronted with is kind of the worst of humanity I do think that it, you know, people don't call the cops to say thanks, right? It's like you get called because there's a problem and that gives you a certain perspective, you know, and my dad was, was no sane. I don't think he was a bad person by any stretch of the imagination, but he definitely had his prejudices. He definitely had things that he was trying to work through as I think many people do in, you know, in those fields, uh, whether it's police, fire, um, EMTs, you know, like you're responding to crises. You just see all this stuff. You essentially build up PTSD every day, and then you just have to go back to work. You know, it's, it's tough. So, um, but I also don't want to make excuses for bad behavior either. And I think you'll see as the story evolves, there's a lot of different angles. So some things that I might've just taken as sort of funny, um, (laughs) we really scrutinized. We really, we took a look at, um, we showed we showed the book to a lot of people friends uh trusted friends um you know ken got a lot of uh, feedback from people having joe illich come on and and edit with us and and do some extra work with us uh was incredibly helpful because there were things that i really was just like what are you talking about like this is not this scene is not bad to me in any way shape or form you're like well that's because you're a white guy and you're 50 years old <laughs> like here let me tell you what I see here and it was it was really incredible to get that stuff. It wasn't so much about humor and the beautiful thing about Joe is that Joe is a crime fan. Like he's a huge crime fan. So he knew exactly what we were going for. He completely understood the point of view. He knows he's known me forever. Um so we were able to to really dive in and I always felt like anything we were doing was helping the story at large. It wasn't just like you know, we weren't trying to sugarcoat things. We weren't trying to just, you know, pass the PC police or anything like that. We really wanted to make sure that the, the story was served properly and that we didn't have things in it that were so jarring or distracting that it would pull people out. And uh, Joe was really instrumental for that. So not as much as on comedy as some other sensitivity stuff, but, you know, comedy once in a while. Um Probably the more serious tangent I took <laughs> than just talking about, oh, fart jokes aren't funny anymore. Um, but uh, it's it's you know, it's probably where I'm at. And now, um, you know, I think about it in terms of humor, I think about it in terms of stories in general. Like, what do I want to read? You know, and what do I enjoy watching? Like, I watch a ton of anime. Um, most of it is, uh, well, I wouldn't say most of it's uplifting. My Hero Academia just took a really dark turn. But the, um, you know, like my hero, you got my hero on one side. It's like, you know, the best version of like, take all the Marvel Universe and throw it into the anime pot. And it's all about helping each other out and hope and all that stuff. And and then there would be, you know, much darker stuff like Chainsaw Man that I'm watching. <laughs> and and I, I can go to either poll as long as something's being said. You know, and that's like I was saying before, like the roller coaster ride is fun. But if my hero was all roller coaster, I wouldn't watch five seasons of it. I have no interest in that. It's it's really finding like, oh, hope in the darkness and all that sort of like there's actually something in there. There's there's a spark that I love. Um, and Chainsaw man's like that, too, even though it's not apparent at first. Um, there's stuff in Chainsaw Man I find hilarious uh, because I was a 16 year old boy and I remember what it was like, <laughs> you know. Um, so, and, and yet my son oddly, uh, can't stand, uh, the, the main character. It's hilarious. He's like, I hate him. He's a piece of garbage. I'm like, no, he's just <laughs> horny. I'm like, it's really, it's, he's just a, a horny idiot, but he is, he is kind of terrible. Um, and I love that. You know, I love, I'll I'll take that any day of the week. And I like that we get to talk about what does that mean? You know?
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so yes, long winded answer to saying, yes, I do think about things differently uh i do think a little bit differently about comedy now but but funny is funny you know it's mm-hmm. um I, i'm working on something that's not comics related and it's been it's been great it's with a, a writing partner who i had not ever worked with previously and she's a very funny writer um and to, to navigate jokes you know in the 21st century uh, has been great, you know, because she's, she's got like no filter. So we just go ahead and, and I love it, you know, and, and you just kind of know, like, even if something, you know, a little dangerous is probably good. Like I'll still go for that. I'll get shut down sometimes. You know, I've got editors, uh, rightfully so if you're working on some big property that have to say, yeah, you're, we're not going to do that joke. You're not, you're not going to do that in Spider-Man. Okay. Got it. <laughs> I understand it's a little bit of a bummer when you can't do those jokes in Deadpool. I have to say, Um, because even, you know, not even going after any group or anything like that, just a, just a good, like make you uncomfortable Deadpool joke. Every once in a while would get shot down. I was like, Oh, come on, man. It's Deadpool. This is the (laughs) only place you can do it. Um, But uh, you know, that's okay. The, the pendulum swings back and forth and, someday uh, I'll look completely tame uh, compared to whatever's coming next, you know down the, down the bike. Uh,
0: speaking of of spider man you know you've also got you've got a two issue stint coming up on Amazing mm-hmm. with uh, Terry Dotson, a uh, little little black cast story. Yeah, you know you've written Spidey off and on for for a long time now, both in the comics and for TV uh you know why why do you feel like he's someone you can keep finding fresh things to uh to do with or say about
1: oh man i mean i you know i i feel like like i said spidey comics were that very first box mm-hmm. right of comic books that i got and um and i don't think it hurt that uh that he'd showed up on the electric company on occasion so i would i would get to see spider man at a very young age but i i've always loved spider man i just i'm so attracted to to him as a character, because I always felt like Peter, uh, you know, especially, you know, the old books, which I'm, I'm not so old that those kind of came out while I was alive. But uh, those are the books that I read often when I was young. And then in the 80s, you know, I like I said, I read every Spider-Man book that that was being printed. So he is a character who. At his heart, you know, he's so good, like he's just trying so hard all the time, and the world perpetually craps on him right like i think at at the best like forget about the even the spider part you know the the superhero mm-hmm. part he is just you know always slogging up the hill so we can always relate to that and with great power comes great responsibility you know is probably one of the best you know uh not just you know, mottos of all time, right? I mean, it's just, it's so clear. It's so succinct. I'm sure Stan heard it from somewhere else and, and adopted it for Spidey, but it fits so perfectly. And that, that tragic backstory propels him all the time. Um, I think I'm also somebody that's driven by guilt. So I've always related to guilt in Spider-Man. And then the powers are just fantastic because he's, 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 he's amazing Uh, He does all this incredible stuff, but he isn't Superman. Like he's not indestructible. So he gets his ass handed to him all the time, but he always gets up, you know? And I just, I love him. Um, I think he's, he's the ideal modern superhero. You know, like I, I don't know, you know, Superman was an ideal of a certain time. Batman's an ideal of another time. Um, You know, maybe a darker time. I don't know. But Spidey, I think just transcends. I think he, He just always works. Um, and of course he's funny. So then you've got the comedy and you've got the quipping. Um, we all wish that in the, you know, the heat of the moment, we knew the right thing to say. He always does. You know, that's incredible. He never, he never winds up in the stairwell later being like, Oh, I should have said that to the shocker. Like, no, he's totally ready. Um,
0: he's never that one Seinfeld episode where George has to deal with the, the, they can't come up to come back until later. (laughs) Exactly. He's never had that.
1: Uh, I forget the French term for the the stairwell comeback or whatever it is. But um, (laughs) yeah, he, so he's always on the ball, you know, and he's, he's just fantastic. He's just fantastic. So, and, and I think because of, um, you know, again, for better or for ill, the way that characters age in comics, it's for me, you know, I have my younger version of Spidey. I've got my sort of more mature version of Spidey and, you know, more mature, like, I don't know what canonically how old he's supposed to be, but he fits in a slice of life that mentally I feel like I am, whether, you know, I know it's not actually true, but um, so it's, it's easy for me to sort of channel that uncertainty of life and, and trying to make your way and, making mistakes all the time and, you know, all that sort of stuff, whether it's him in high school, college, or sort of out in the world. Um, so I love him. I just, I I, I can't imagine not loving Spider-Man. <laughs> um, he's really become, uh, I don't, I don't know, you know, some characters I describe as bulletproof. I, I'm not entirely sure that Spider-Man is bulletproof. I do think that there are ways you could do Spider-Man that would break him. Whereas Batman, we've literally seen, you've got 66 Batman to Dark Knight, right? Everything in between, like unbreakable character, just something about him for whatever reason works. Uh, I don't know if Spidey's like that, but that, that I actually makes me like him even more.
0: Uh, You've also, uh, Marvel's also putting out an omnibus of your Spider-Man stories next month. Uh, Do you, do you have a favorite Spidey story that you've written or, or, you know, yeah, do you have a favorite?
1: Um, it's so funny. I I literally didn't even know that was happening. I you're you're the second person that told me, but the but the when the first person told me, I was like, no, you're kidding, right? Like you mean Deadpool? There's a Deadpool on this.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. Um, I getting to work on the book on the monthlies was amazing. That was such a great time period, and and everybody who was in the brain trust at that time was so cool. Like you know, it's one of the last comic book rooms that i was in um you know it was it was a while ago and it was a while before covid but you know where you really were going in and we're meeting each other in new york and and having a really good time um so during that time getting to do the that rhino story with max fumar you know it's like i love that story so much and that wasn't even going to be mine originally that was actually a guggenheim story that then for whatever reason you end up not doing and i was like oh i'll do that um Max is so incredibly talented um, and, and such a wonderful, I mean, he's just another wonderful guy. I've been so lucky in my career, but something about that story, even though it's so short, um, just it carries a lot of weight for me. And, uh, and the response to it has always been really, really nice, positive. You know, I love the gauntlet. Um, I love all the Craven stuff. I mean, you know, I grew up, you know, having read the, you know, Craven's last hunt, uh, you know, that that came out as i was reading right so like that was a that's a very near and dear to my heart story um, and having gotten to work with you know Dematis on superman and stuff was was super cool he's a, he's another wonderful person um, but uh but yeah that rhino story just stands out i don't you know it's just awesome and and you know i, was, I guess as a as a close second not not for at all the quality of the, of the art or anything like that working with Picello on spidey is always mm-hmm. incredible because his Spidey is just preposterous. And um and that first Hammerhead story, you know, as a kid, I thought Hammerhead was scary. It just something about him, yeah, you know, just it's probably the uh, you know, I mean like literally the Hammerhead was was freaky to me. And I'm sure it was some it's probably animated very oddly in the in the old cartoon. Um <laughs> but to get to do that with Chris and make him scary as hell and just have him this murderous, you know, thug um with an adamantium skull it was like sure like bring it on (laughs) chris so yeah i've I've been lucky i you know i honestly uh i I don't know if if a lot of people say this or not but i i have been incredibly blessed in that almost across the board and i've been doing this for a while um i have gotten to write the stories i wanted to write you know like uh, sometimes yes there's committees involved um you're working with other people's playing with other people's toys. Right. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, they're not mine. And, and that's fine. I, you know, I get that's part of the job, but the, the good stuff would come out of those rooms and that's the stuff we got to work on, you know, Uh, whether it was, you know, Superman or Spidey or whatever. So uh, I've been really lucky, you know, there, there's a couple of hiccups in the career where that maybe wasn't the case or something got derailed or we didn't get to finish or whatever. But, um, But that spidey run was so fun i mean i just and and then of course getting to do spidey deadpool was like its own special joy you know nick Lowe, um who's been my editor on spidey for for most of this stuff uh, all of it i guess uh you know he's just he's so um enthusiastic and smart and giddy and he comes up with you know (laughs) it'll it'll be one of those like you're pulling me back in kind of moments you know where he'll just call (laughs) me he's like i know you're busy but and then he'll just say Chris Picello, nonstop. I don't know what it means. Do you want to work on it? I was like, yes. I don't know what that means either, you know. Or he's like, I have an offer you can't refuse. It's Ed McGinnis, Spidey, Deadpool. Yes, of course. Like, of course, I'm not saying no. You're kidding me. Um, so he's he's been the uh, you know the puppet master uh, pulling me back in. So uh, and I'm and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful because it's you know I, I'm I'm proud of all the stuff I've gotten to do, but the the fan in me. To get to write Spidey, you know, always is the kid. Me, it's like you wrote (laughs) Spider-Man and that's very. And to know that it's being collected into an omnibus is hilarious to me. So, Uh, so that's, yeah, it's good stuff.
0: One, one, one throwback comic that I did want to know about uh, not non Spidey related, but uh, so in 2006, you wrote uh, Superman, Batman, annual one, which is a retelling of the first time Batman and Superman meet uh, and guest starring some ne'er do wells from earth three. Uh, in which we learned that the death stroke of Earth-3 is in fact Deadpool. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and McGinnis is drawing this as well. Uh, was, th- was this a difficult uh, gag to sneak past editorial or was everyone in on the joke there?
1: No, every everybody was in on the joke. It was at a time where it was considered a harmless joke, which is good. Um, you know, the, the... As long as no
0: one tells Rob Liefeld.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> well, and the funny thing, I've seen, I've seen... I feel like I've seen Rob post things recently about like the timing of Wade Wilson versus Slade Wilson or something. I always thought it was just a known thing that he just, you know, based the the name on, on deathstroke. I just thought, assumed that was true. Um, so whether or not it is, I leave for Rob to decide, but that was certainly what we thought it was when I was, when I was working on that annual and um and yeah, and and the you know it's like always a cold war, right, between Marvel and DC, and depending on how how diplomatic relations are going, you can like get away with some stuff or you can't. And um and that was a time period where we were able to do it. And um I believe uh, I'm trying to remember, you know, Matt Idelson had come over from uh from Marvel, I was working on DC and uh, over at DC and. You know, it just helps grease the wheels <laughs> for all that stuff. <laughs> and then with Ed, it was a no brainer. You know, I mean, one of the beautiful things about working with Ed is I literally can just be like, what do you want to what do you want to draw? And I'll be like, oh, you know, I like Deathstroke. You know, i like, OK, <laughs> cool. Well, work in Deathstroke, you know, we'll figure it out. And um, and it's always good, you know, because uh, because he's Ed, you know, and and when he's you know, I try to do that with anybody um, that I work with on on one of the franchise things. Uh, what do they want to draw because they have to spend a lot more time with it than Mm -hmm. I do so they they sure as hell better be having fun you know Um, but yeah it was uh, everybody was in on on the gag
0: overall how does how does your your tv writing inform your comics writing and vice versa
1: oh that's that's a great question it's um it's funny writing for comics is good and bad training for right you know for writing for other media so where it's good is, especially if you're on a monthly book, getting real deadlines, understanding the consequences of what happens if you miss um, the types of, you know, visual storytelling, which is, is it's not prose, um, it's not writing for theater, you know I mean, it's a very distinct mode of storytelling. Uh, comics absolutely can teach that. Um, learning to collaborate with people is huge, right? Because again, it's not a novel. Maybe in my head is some, you know, Faberge egg. And then I hand it off and I, you know, get an <laughs> avocado. Like, I, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. Um, and then you get that, that second bite at the apple, right, where you get to do some dialogue pass at the end. Um, so those are all positives that directly can translate to other media, whether it's, you know, animation, video games, live action. But where you can get, uh, where it's bad is, uh, th- so there's no real format. Right for script writing for comics, you you can do whatever you want and like you know Alan Moore famously you know it's like oh if it takes six pages to describe one panel and I want to describe every book on the shelf whatever you can do that uh, in comics and you know obviously only it would only be tolerated (laughs) from Alan Moore. I've I've written some longish scripts in my day, but uh, usually because they look like movie scripts and I'm putting a dialogue in. I'm I'm more guilty of too much dialogue than too much uh, set description. But you can do that, right? You don't have to worry about the sort of page a minute rule of thumb. Um, You don't have to think too much about cost. You never have to think about cost, right? The artist is going to draw what they're going to draw. You know, Ken might have extra assistance if I need a big landscape with a cityscape with all sorts of people. Maybe that has an impact on budget, but generally it doesn't. You try to pull that same stuff in any other script writing. It's just getting cut. Like, there's no question. So you can develop this sort of bloated writing style uh, that does not translate well, you know, in other media. And dialogue, too, because the written word is so different than the spoken word. You know, there there's stuff that when you read it in the script or or you read it in a comic, there's no, you don't think twice about it. it totally reads fine. Then you hear it out loud and you're like, oh, that's terrible. Or you can just get away with so much less, you know, because you can trust the actors and you can trust the performances. Um so that, that's an interesting learning curve. Um, now I feel like most, so many writers are sort of, they move between different media that it's, um, it's, you don't, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule anymore of like, oh, if you're a comics writer, you're one type of writer. But there was a time where that was the case, you know, for sure. And comics writers really were looked down on almost virtually across all other media because it was like, oh, that's comics. <laughs> you know, like that was it. And even though, almost everybody in all those other media were being inspired by the work of comics. Like there is no question. Um, I mean, you just take, you know, Sandman, right. It finally hits TV, but Sandman has infused many things. Dark Knight has infused many things, right. Akira, like you just go back, all these things have infiltrated so much other media, but you get one of those comic book writers to like work in Hollywood in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, into the two thousands. It was like, Ooh, no, (laughs) that's not going to happen. Thankfully that, that time has passed. Mm -hmm. Um, not, you know, then it's just up to is somebody a good writer. or Um, but yeah, so those, so they do inform one another, like I said, you can pick up good habits from either one, but, um, but I'm, I'm glad that I was trained up as a screenwriter because of a certain like economy of language and, and kind of worried about structure more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And then really cut my teeth in, in the sort of episodic nature of comics. Um, those two together really helped uh, and, and great teachers along the way, you know, whether it was editors or artists or other writers, you know, I've just been so lucky. I really, really. Have.
0: You're still active in, 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 in TV as well. And uh, so, you know, Man of Action worked on Sonic prime on Netflix, which dropped in, December with with something like that uh how many how many masters are you sort of serving at that point or, or by that I mean you know how many layers of oversight so you've got like <laughs> Sega involved now you've got Netflix involved etc and sort of how do you how do you work with that without losing your mind from notes
1: <laughs> uh I'll I'll let you know when my mind comes back <laughs> <laughs> uh it's you know Sonic Prime has been a, another really thrilling uh experience especially the last you know the the fan reaction's been incredible um you know it, it debuted in the top 10 and all that good stuff it, it's mm-hmm. really been great <clears throat> and um it's been it was a it was a challenge i'm not gonna lie you know the you know you're dealing with a uh you know a, a beloved property um and sega has very specific sort of franchise rules uh that you have to sort of play by which again is fine uh and we're used to you know like everybody at man of actions worked in comics so we've all worked for big companies and you know i mean when when i got offered superman I, it was coming off of deadpool and it was like you know you you're not going to do any of that deadpool shenanigans here right because <laughs> if superman gets a haircut it's on the cover of time magazine like that's, that's a big deal so you know we all know that um but but there's there's some very interesting sort of communication things, uh, you know, between here and, and Japan and and even within a company like Sega that becomes just interesting to navigate. Uh, the the folks at Wildbrain who produced the show and, and did all the animation, <clears throat> they're amazing. They're amazing. And, uh, you know, the people there, are su- they're storytellers, number one. So that's the beautiful thing. It's like at the end of the day, you kind of, you go through you know how, what should the gloves look like and what should the shoes look like and all that kind of stuff and would sonic do this and would you know shadow do that or whatever you go through all that but at the end of the day everybody's focused on just making a really cool story and um you know yeah can it be a slog when you have a lot of notes and you think you're onto something great yes <laughs> you know but it was not that very you know much different than uh you know times i thought i was going to knock it out of the park on superman you know then mike carl was like yeah we're not doing that story <laughs> like okay got it you know i understand and he wasn't wrong you know it was just wasn't right for the franchise you know um so yeah it was uh it, it was it, and it's been a long road to get here too you know netflix they've been great um for sure but they were really the last partners in um because the show is sort of rolling and and being produced you know, before Netflix showed up. So we had been developing it for a really long time and kind of getting scripts in order and all that sort of stuff. So, um, but they've, they've all been cool. So it's been, uh, it's been good and, and learning a lot, (laughs) you know, like to actually work with a streamer where you understand why they make decisions the way they do uh, and this sort of data-driven elements. Um, It's very easy to, of course, you know, put on my, my, creator hat with a capital C and be like, ah, fee on you and your data-driven statistics. It's the 21st century. Like, I need to know these things so that I can make sure that this project and future projects have the best chance of success, you know, um, if it's going to live in that platform. So it's it's been really cool. Um you know, overall, but lots of lots of work, lots of uh <laughs> you know, paying attention to, to noodly bits and making sure that everything's explained and, and and clear. So uh, but you know, the final product I think really speaks for itself, and that's all that matters, you know. Like nobody nobody sees behind the scenes of all this stuff and uh and it's fine. You yeah. know, all of our all of our favorite things. There was a lot of warts that never made it to the screen or to the page, and that's fine. That's fine.
0: What is what is the weird weirdest thing about Sonic that you had to keep in mind while working on prime and uh, <laughs> I I asked this as someone who just learned like this week that he's obsessed with chili dogs. No idea didn't know.
1: interesting interesting. <laughs> oh man um shoes never can come off. So that's pretty important. yeah interesting. Will, yes Ooh. those shoes never come off um what else. Oh gosh, now I can't believe I'm blanking on it because I feel like there are so many. <laughs> um, we definitely learned a lot. There, I mean, there's a whole like lore team, you know, and there, mm-hmm. there's like, you know, as you would expect for, you know, for for a respective franchise. Um, but I think I think the shoes not coming off uh, was a big deal because you'll really be like, ever? Like, like, does he clean them? What's up with his feet? Like, it's just don't even ask these questions. This is like the forbidden. The Forbidden Corridor, you can't go down. Uh,
0: Matt, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think I remember us talking to an artist last year who was asked to do a Sonic Foot commission.
2: I'm pretty sure you're... uh, I know I've heard that
0: somewhere. So that might. Have been, I, I won't I drop do. the name in case I'm misremembering details, but yeah. Oh, that's yeah.
1: that's okay. I I will I will also say that my my niece has a tattoo of of Sonic <laughs> without a shoe on. <laughs> so it's a thing. It's a beloved subgenre of Sonic.
0: <laughs> I'll what just leave that there. <laughs> well, go figure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
2: So I was going to ask this anyway, but you you mentioned you know working with Max Fumara earlier, so I I, I feel additionally justified in asking what might be a chestnut you hear way too often. Uh, is there going to be more Four <laughs> Eyes anytime in the future? Because that second volume ended in a way that's like, ah, yes, more
1: please.
0: <laughs> Very last episode uh, of Elf.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I um i would love to uh, and and max has said that he would he would uh, do that as well um i am always the weak link when it comes to this stuff and uh, and i you know I, I don't say that as like a martyr or whatever it's it's really it's just true like you know if projects with re- you know with some exception but when it comes to creator own stuff it's always it's always been me you know it's like bad dog kind of befell the same fate i really bit off more than i could chew and when, when we first launched those books and image. I Kill Giants was done when we first kicked off, so to sort of hit that, I didn't have to worry about a monthly grind. We just released it and it was already finished. But Four Eyes and and Bad Dog, uh, you know, were were more of a challenge for me. So, you know, I was a, we were able to get those first two volumes out. I love Four Eyes. I mean, Max is like, he, you know, again, he's he's so brilliant, and I think one of the nicest things. <clears throat> that anybody ever said about that book was that they thought it was written and drawn by the same person. Like they just felt, and, and I agree, like everything in my head was always there. Like max just has that, that telepathic ability, which is uh, partly why I think that, you know, that rhino story is so good. So, uh, yes, I would love to. And the, you know, of course, the bitter irony is it's literally eight more issues, right? It's like four volumes of four issues. Um, and I know what happens <laughs> you know, like it's done and I even know how to get out of that cliffhanger which for a little while I didn't I will say <laughs>
0: um
1: but I did figure it out finally and I figured out how to start the next uh, next arc um it uh so once I dropped the ball on something like that um which is always to my great shame and dismay you know of course I can't expect anybody to sit around and wait so then Max went on to do the Abe Sapien books uh you know with him and his brother then you get into the just the finances of like okay, I'm going to ask you to not do this, you know, well-paying gig, for a long period of time to do our little creator own book, even though you know we own it together and all that stuff. It's a it's a big ask for somebody. So the answer is yes, I would love to, and I I really hope it's going to happen. Um, I did have a fantasy that because we were trying to sell that uh, also in Hollywood for a while, that if we could get it optioned. Um, then that would be a way to sort of foot the bill to kick through. Um, and we tried a couple of times and we had some very cool people uh, connected to it, but it, it did not get up that particularly hill well at that time. So, so that was, that was a bit of a bummer, but, um, but I would love to, I love that story. I love the ending. I love Enrico, like everything about it. I love, and and just to see, you know, see more Max. So um I always I always take those things in, in the spirit in which they are intended, which is uh, you know, <laughs> love. It's, it's good. It's good to uh, to be reminded of a nice kick in the pants. Go back to your babies. Take care of them. <laughs> take care of them, babies.
0: Uh, so. In the, in the days when you were first starting in in comics, uh, Wizard magazine used to rank its top 10 writers. And you were regular on that list in that period. <laughs> How much attention did you pay to that as a gauge of of anything
1: oh gosh that's so funny um i definitely uh you know so the internet was was in its nascent stages right
0: yeah speaking and, of um, <clears throat>
1: yeah exactly and we used to like i used to do aol like live chats right that's what we would be doing so i'd be like typing as furiously you know quickly as possible to try to answer questions um but I didn't, they weren't really message boards or whatever. So I, I, and I sort of decided early on in my career that I was, I was not going to go down that rabbit hole, whatever form it was, because you have to take the good and the bad in equal measure if you choose to do that. And once you open those door, you know, I mean, you guys, know, you put work out there into the world. So you're just opening yourself up, whether it's like a, a well-intentioned like eh not my favorite episode like it's just a little it's a thorn that like sticks and then but if you get a whole you know uh thicket <laughs> it's not a good way to proceed so uh so i tended to stay away from that stuff with with a couple of rare exceptions like um action 70 75 i was like i wanted to see how people respond to this and mm-hmm. you know uh eichel giants and stuff like that. so so when when the top 10 list was coming out it was sort of shocking to me to be on it um But I was like, "All right, well, this is cool. Like, it's sort of preposterous, whatever. Let's see how high it goes." Like, it didn't make any sense to me because I was so new, you know. And Steve Siegel uh, loves to tell a story. You know, Steve and I are like best friends, and we met on the X Men. Uh, We've been buddies ever since. And he was like, "Well, I just, I just knew that you had never done any work, and all of a sudden you're on the X Men. I've been in the industry already for ten years, and nobody gave a shit. So I just wanted to hate you. (laughs) Now now here you are, you know, my best friend." so um so it was this weird thing of like i don't deserve to be in this company of people but sure like go ahead and uh and i did i did look and i i the highest i ever got was number two i'm not going to pretend that i don't know because of course i did pay attention um and and then my and then my star fell down the chart and i was like okay now it's done i don't have to think about it you know like it was becoming a thing where i was like oh am i ever going to be the number one writer and it was just silly, you know, it was just silly, but, uh, it's easy to get caught up in that stuff though. Right. I mean, we're all, we're all humans and we all like have our own little craving of attention and stuff like that. And I'm a sucker for awards. You know, I, <laughs> I used to, you know, as much as I, I don't, I don't like we're in the middle of award season, right. Uh, for, mm-hmm. you know, for TV and movies and stuff. And, um, and it's very easy for me to just be like, ah, oh, they're all political. And I, you know, who really gets to win and whatever. And my favorites often don't win. And um, but I, I would take an Oscar. Of course I would you nuts. Like, <laughs> of course I want an Oscar. My, uh, you know, uh, Andrews Walter, who directed I Kill Giants, uh, he, he is an Oscar winning director. He won a, a, an Oscar for, for a short film. And I was at his house in, uh, in Denmark. And I was like, Oh my God, there's your Oscar. It was just like sitting on a book, you sh- know, bookcase.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: went to go touch. it. He's like, don't touch. It. It's bad luck. If you haven't won one, you shouldn't touch it. And I wouldn't touch it. So obviously there's part of me that's still like superstitious enough that I wouldn't hold the Oscar <laughs> because someday, maybe my backbench, I could be George Miller and you know, in my seventies and all of a sudden getting claim uh, so yeah, you know, I it was it was a thing. It was a it was Wizard was a very interesting time. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean we had we had a, lots of funny, silly stuff happen with Wizard. I mean, I I made very good friends that I've known, you know, through uh my whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ben 10 is a direct result of knowing Matt Senreich because mm-hmm. Matt started Robot Chicken with Seth Green, but mm-hmm. before it was robot chicken, it was thing called Sweet J. And They were pitching it to Cartoon Network, and Cartoon Network asked them about superhero stuff. And they're like, oh, we don't really do superheroes. We're doing this comedy thing, but you should go talk to the guys. And they sent them over to talk to us about Ben 10. So Robot Chicken's the grandfather of Ben 10 in some kind of weird way, which I love. And it goes back to Wizard, which is just insane. Um, But Wizard flew uh, Jeff Loeb and I out to uh, Metropolis, Illinois, for a Superman (laughs) spread once. Uh, which was amazing. That was an amazing trip. I thought we were all going to die because we had to fly into one airport and then take like the smallest plane I've ever been, well, second smallest plane I've ever been in my life, a propeller plane to mm. get to Paducah, wherever we went to, to then drive to Metropolis. Um, it was amazing, you know. And so Wizard would do crazy stuff like that because uh, they were the only game in town <laughs> at that point. They were they were your source of news, and then the internet
0: came and. Um, but yes, my, my short lived top 10 list. uh, uh, penultimate question. What are you reading right now?
1: It's so funny. I have such a humongous pile of books that I just literally cleaned out like my, my bedside cabinet and it's embarrassing to me. I have books I literally bought like years ago that I'm like, oh my God, I have not read these books. Um, the, I'm, I'm actively reading chainsaw man and Kaiju number eight at the moment. Um, because I I wanted to get ahead on Chainsaw Man because I, I just didn't mm-hmm. want to wait for more of it, and then uh, my nephew and I <clears throat> we share a lot about you know manga and stuff and anime, so he was like oh Kaiju number eight just super fun, so that's been really fun. Um, and what else am I? Uh, I'm trying to think of this. Any American things I'm reading at the moment? Honestly, there's not. I feel bad, but um, but I just haven't I haven't made a ton of time. I uh, when I have free time. Doing a lot of, you know, streaming, Netflix, you know, all that kind of stuff. Watching movies. Just watched the uh, Banshees of uh, In a Sharon last night. That thing was amazing. It's amazing. Um, I love Martin McDonough. So it was an amazing film. But uh, like I'm watching uh, Wednesday and uh, The the Servant just came back on. So that's, that's a very exciting, creepy baby show as we like to call it. At my house. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm bad on reading and, and I play a lot of games. So that's the other, you know, I've been playing, uh, Elden Ring with the help of my, my, uh, nephews, uh, who are, who are also adults, <laughs> you know, not like 10 year old nephews or they're, they're in their thirties. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they, so they helped me kick ass in that, um, and a game called inscription, uh, which is a pretty whacked, uh, card game, but I love it. Um, and then, uh, and a lot of Marvel snap. I have to say.
0: Oh, who isn't? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's it, I feel like I'm reading comics because of how much Marvel staff I play. Uh, it's that game is so addictive. Uh, it's it's remarkable. It's remarkable. But yes, I so I do feel bad. I've 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 fallen off the bandwagon a little bit. Um, and also with with just prose, you know, just novels in general. The same nephew just sent me a book that he just finished uh, a proper you know prose book. And uh, it was telling me how great it was, and I was just like, "What is this thing again? This book you speak of? <laughs> you know, it's been a while, so I'm I'm hoping to get back into it." But um, uh, yeah, and other you know other hobbies, kind of, uh, you know, thought. but um, but I, you know, it's funny picking up um those you know the two manga has kind of gotten the bug back, mm-hmm. um, which is good. You know, it's it's they're so short too, right? I mean, it's like you you burn through them, and so the weekly fix is kind of like, oh now what i sh- what am i going to read so that giant pile of stuff i'll probably start digging through first before i buy anything new um it's mostly uh, you know it's there's a lot of saga in there there's a lot of uh, reminder books in there um because i was really enjoying deadly Class, and uh, so yeah so it's going back you know some of the stuff is going back a ways uh because literally they've been sitting in a drawer for so long well <laughs> uh-
0: Joe, this has been a fantastic time. Final question as we release you back into the world. Uh, how can people uh, follow you online, keep up with the Mortal Sergeant and everything else that you've got you're uh, doing?
1: Well, yeah. Well, thank you guys again for this has been super fun. And and uh, I really appreciate uh, the support and, and all the great questions. So thank you so much. Um, you can find me uh, online. Uh, my handle is at that Joe Kelly. Because um, there are other Joe Kellys uh, that you may or may not know. Uh, one of them is a famous baseball player. And I can't tell you how many people would be like, Joe Kelly was trending. I thought you were dead. I'm like, yes, luckily that was not not me and not while I was trending. And then uh, there's another Joe Kelly who uh, I'll tell you this quick divergent story. Um, so uh, Joe Kelly writes, uh, he wrote How I Met Your Mother. Oh. And he's one of the, the head writers of Ted Lasso. And he used to live in New York. Lives in L.A. now. And when he was in New York, he did a little work on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. So in the Writers Guild, all this stuff is supposed to be very clear and separate. And every once in a while, I would get a check, and it wasn't like it was like a hundred dollar, eighty dollar check, and be for Joe Kelly. And I'm like, what is this for? And I look because it was an animation, mm-hmm. and it was it was for Saturday Night Live. And I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. So I would call them and tell them. And for years, this went on and it was never like big money. And then one time there was a check that was like a couple of hundred dollars. And I was like, all right, this is preposterous. I've called the guild. It's not getting fixed. So I went on Facebook and I was like, does anybody know the other Joe Kelly? I have his money. He's the one who writes on how I met your mother. And within 24 hours, the power of the Internet, he was able to contact me. So uh, he's a grand fella. We hit it off really well. Uh, you know, lovely guy. And uh, so I sent him his check and then at one point he says hey uh, what's your address i want to send you something because i think you might be the only person on earth i know who will appreciate this he went to a dodgers game joe kelly was the pitcher it was joe kelly bobblehead day so he got a joe kelly bobblehead and he was there with his father who's also joe kelly and his body didn't want his so he's like so i'm going to send you joe kelly this joe kelly bobblehead from joe kelly so we had joe kellyception very excited. Uh, uh, so that's just my, my silly Joe Kelly story it has a, a, a place of honor on the show. Um, but uh, so yeah so at that uh, that Joe Kelly um, I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Um, not as active as I used to be just because uh, it's a burning hellscape and I can only I can only deal with so much but people have always been nice to me and you know it's it's been cool but uh, it's just I can only take in so much um and uh and then you know man of action just you know look for our name on uh on things near you we've got sonic prime like you mentioned on netflix uh we have uh the hello neighbor um bizarre little series so the hello neighbor series premiered in the game uh premiered in hello neighbor 2 uh and then it's going to start showing up on on youtube and other places uh that's that's a very cool and weird project. Um, you know, it's one of those uh it's not, you know, like, oh, well, well, it is that's funny because some of it's really dark. <laughs> I find that hilarious. Yeah. Steve, Steve Siegel will be the first to tell you if there are kids in danger, uh, I will start laughing. So that's <laughs> that's definitely Hello Neighbor fits perfectly into that. Um and uh and the Spidey books, uh, you know, so they're coming out like said, I
0: believe this month and next month. Uh, February, or, March, I think I saw. Okay,
1: so. February, March. Um, they're they're just fun. Like they're, you know, you ask about comedy. I mean, this is like romantic comedy. You know, one on one, it's just super fun. Spidey and Black Cat, uh, Terry Dodson. You just kind of, you know, can't ask for better. Right? It's just so fun. Um, so that's that's exciting. And now, uh, thanks to you, you told me that the Joe Kelly Omnibus is coming out. <laughs> so you can find that at a comic book store under you. Um, but yeah, that Joe Kelly, and then on YouTube, I, I though I'm a little late. I haven't done one for a little while, but I I've been putting up videos on YouTube, um, partly because I'm uh, I'm a I'm a spotlight whore and I like to make videos about myself. But uh, no, I, I try to do videos about creativity and writing and just what sort of the, the you know creator's life is like, and I find it very fun but very time consuming because I don't I cannot bring myself to just talk and to the phone for three minutes and my daughter is like just get on tiktok and just do a thing on the phone i'm like i just can't i have to edit it and put in visual effects and all this nonsense split screen like i'm doing you know uh, like all of a sudden i'm dreamworks in my office but it's uh (laughs) it's fun i hope that it's informative to people but it's also at that joe kelly so uh that's how to find me
0: well well uh we'll let you go back to the multiversal council of joe kelly's and uh (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the show
1: Oh, uh, thank you so much for having me, guys. Seriously, it was really wonderful. It was great talking to you, and uh good luck with everything.
0: That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQA is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman Ranking Podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQA on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support wmq at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a Pete Wisdom Hot Claws sticker, designed by Kevin Newburn. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, a $4 donation gets you access to our son Pete and the sticker and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Cap Liz Large, and Will Nevin from ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Asimov Fangirl aka the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow wmq on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowicz at MattLaz1013 and ComicsXF at ComicsXF, assuming Twitter still works. And until next week, remember, if Spider-Man can teach the Beyonder to poop, you can pretty much do anything you set your mind to. I believe in you. W-N-Q-A